0: You are now listening to the Photography Enthusiast podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Photography Enthusiast. As always, I'm your host Daniel Lee or Photos by DLW. So today we'll be discussing an exciting new camera and the sort of long-standing topic of is bokeh a or bokeh a crutch for photographers. As usual, I'll get into some personal updates, then go through some news topics, which is where we'll be discussing the new Sony Alpha A1, and then we'll go into our main topic after that. So in terms of what I've been up to, got quite a few new toys in the past few weeks. So one of them was the Canon RF to RF adapter. The other was the Tamron's tripod collar, and I'm going for the genuine one. So because I got the tripod collar and the adapter, I managed to use it on the R6. Now I've used obviously adapters before I've used the Metab- not Metabone, sorry the Sigma MC11 on Sony, and I've also used it for the Canon as well, the Canon EFM to EF adapter. You know generally when they're made by the actual first party, you know like Canon, they perform just like they would on a native lens, so there's nothing really to worry about when using it. It's like you're using a native lens. In saying that, I am very pleasantly surprised by the quality I actually get with the Tamron on the R6. So in terms of the Tamron, I did post a few photos on my blog post of photos by DLW. With that one, I finally done my first ever photo of the moon. So even though I've been doing photography for over nine and a half years, I've never owned a lens that is longer than 100 millimeters. Because of this, i had never actually taken a photo of the moon before. There was one time where my friend Vernon and I, we lived like a few houses down from each other. He had like a 55 to 250, I think it was, the kit lens with his 600D. I had the tripod, so we tried shooting outside outside my house using his camera. I think, you know, obviously the photos didn't turn out that great considering it's a 250mm lens and the tripod I had at the time was pretty bad as well, which shake non-stop. But that's the closest I had come to actually using or taking photos of the moon. Decided, you know, one evening I was at home itching to shoot, which I have been pretty much daily now since getting this camera. I decided, hey, it's pretty clear out the sky. I use Photopills, the app, to see where the moon would be. And based on where it was, it was high enough that it wouldn't be blocked by any of the other apartment buildings. So we've got some pretty high rise apartments around us, but it was also clear enough to be seen. So I went up on the roof, gave that a try. I had to crop the image a lot to get it to look how I wanted to look. So obviously the 60, sorry 60, the R6 is a 20 megapixel sensor. I cropped it down to maybe around three and a half to four megapixels. So it's quite a significant crop, but there's so much detail there still, it still looks amazing. And I'm not going to be printing it, it's just going to, you know, go online, go on Flickr on my website. So it really does not matter how many megapixels it is, regardless of that, the results were great. I also got to shoot some sort of cityscapes. There's a suburb a few over, a few blocks over from me called Piemont, or Piemont as people will call it. With that one, you can actually see it at around 300 millimeters. I got a nice photo of both like the on-ramp kind of thing of the Anzac Bridge and some high-rise apartments in that area. So it turned out really nice. These photos are all on photosbydearly.com. I plan to post them to Flickr eventually, just haven't got around to it yet. I like to slowly post everything, have constant photos to keep posting. So I'm usually quite a few weeks ahead in terms of how many photos I want to post. But I took that, another one of the Anzac Bridge. Overall, the Tamron performs so much better on the R6. Image quality wise, everything in my sharpness test I did just around the house, it performs really, really well. One thing I had to learn about though with a lens like this is in regards to stuff like heat haze so you know if you're shooting on a hot day when you're shooting at 400 millimeters especially something quite far from you you'll have heat haze which makes the image look a lot softer and you know drops the contrast and all that so that was something I did have to sort of compete with but when I've done it control testing in the house even at 400 millimeters near infinity it still turns out excellent because I had the adapter as well I thought why not just try the 50 millimeter f1.8 so this lens was pretty bad on my 6d it was bad on the m5 Even adapting it to the Sony a7 Mark III, wide open, very soft. I figured this lens was just something that, you know, it's so cheap. It's not worth selling. But at the same time, the image quality, I wasn't happy with it. So I wouldn't use it either. So it was sort of in an awkward position. Now in saying that, when I adapted it to the R6, I was very, very pleasantly surprised because this lens, if you told me it was the same lens as the one I was using previously, I would not believe you because of how good it is. Once again, on the blog post, there's lots of samples with it quite a few wide open ones just around the house, as well as I did a product shot of one of my colognes, an last cologne of it, cologne, yeah. It was amazing, like the sharpness, it's like a completely different lens. I don't know why. The only thing I can think is number one, the AF system in the R6 is that much better compared to the M5. And when it comes to why it didn't perform as well on the A7 Mark III, probably just didn't compa- wasn't as compatible with the MC11 and that's what was causing that issue. I have to admit having such a nice sharp 15 millimeter lens now, Kind of gives me a little gas, making me want a fifty-one-four. But at the same time, the only one that I think, in price-wise, that I would buy would either be the fifty-millimeter art from Sigma in EF mount, or the fifty-millimeter Tamron Opera lens. No Tamron, sorry, Tokina. So the only thing that's stopping me from really doing that. Number one, my goal can't buy any other lenses, and I don't need it at the moment. Number two, and more importantly, is if Sigma were to release a 50mm f1.4 DG lens, I would be jumping on that. I think if they can follow the same sort of design principles as their 85, make it small like how their EX lenses used to be, which the 50 EX was a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful lens. I would absolutely love to get it and use that permanently on my camera. Then I can run 35, 50, and 85, sort of depending on what situation I'm in. Can use 35. You know, 35 is a little bit more wide. So if I want to take people photos as well as Landscape, seascapes, that kind of stuff. 35 comes in, whereas if I had just more people orientated, more street orientated, that's where the 50 would come in, so I could sort of balance it out that way. But we'll see how we go. Aside from that, that pretty much sums up my personal updates. We'll get straight into the news. So in terms of news, Nikon's apparently financial situation could potentially, potentially, potentially be worsening. So they pretty much anticipate a historic 720 million dollar loss. So they haven't lost that yet but that's how much they expect to lose. So in total yen, that would be 75 billion yen, which is obviously a significant amount of money. And to put that in perspective, Canon's expecting to make a profit of 64 billion yen by the end of the same fiscal year, which, you know, compared to Nikon, that is really, really worrying for their survival. Because of this, and obviously funds are more limited, according to this article and interview on Petapixel, Nikon is now going to finally focus on mirrorless and sort of leave DSLRs behind. Sorry, the DSLR users out there. I know Joey's one of them. Um, But, you know, this is the right move to do. Mirrorless is the future. If you have limited funds, you can only focus on one. There's no point in focusing on something that's more older technology. In the interview, one of the people said, in the fiscal year ending March 2021, we concentrated on mirrorless cameras and expanded the lineup. And this attitude will not change in the fiscal year ending March 2022. For the time being we'll concentrate on mirrorless cameras so unlike canon where they said they're pretty much done with dslrs nikon have just said they're going to focus on mirrors for now and then you know who knows maybe they can go back to dslrs after that whether they'll see a need for that you know for all they know for all we know they keep releasing mirrorless gear everyone switches over to mirrorless who's a nikon user in that and people new users existing people on other brands switch over to nikon they might not see the need to actually go for a dslr because There's not really much you can expand on in terms of sense, just mainly sensor and that's it. Mirrorless will always be where it's at in terms of new tech, like if you, what you'll go into later with the Sony A1, stuff like silent shutter, it's so, so amazing what they're able to do. So that's where Nikon really needs to use their money and focus their attention on as well. The next one, which is quite a good point to make is by joey actually so it was on predapixel had reposted his article on why we shouldn't view our hobby of photography as a competition so you know he made the good points that with hobbies you know depending on what it is like for me aside from photography i have gaming as well hobbies are meant to be a way to escape from reality relax and not actually have to worry about work it's not it's meant to be something serious whereas because of social media the way we share photos and the way we perceive them has completely changed Long gone are the very, very old days where you would print your photos out, have it on your kitchen table and just show people when they come over now. It's all about posting online. It's all about likes. It's all about, in some cases, what people do is doing dangerous stuff. You know, climbing on the top of who knows how many, like hundreds of meters, even kilometers high up in the sky just to take a photo hanging off a building so they can get more likes and more favorites than anyone, which has turned into a competition, which what the point of Joey's article is. Likes are creating this unnecessary hierarchy where You know, everyone has to compete. Even though for many of us it's a hobby, we still have that need to actually want to compete and be number one. We're seeing lots of videos and documentaries, like *The Social Network* that um *The Social Dilemma*. Sorry, that came out recently, where it pretty much looked into how Facebook started and how they, you know, first started using the like book and like button that, and how it tries to sort of control everything you do and your thoughts. You know, like with the instead of say Twitter, they do a chronological feed. So you see what they post. Whereas with Instagram, it's more, they choose what to show you. That's where the issue is. So, you know, people are competing for favorites and likes all the time. You know, people follow you, then unfollow you just because they want more followers and have, you know, even on Instagram, it's considered bad to have, be following more people than they follow you. So it's just, that's like another example of how bad this is. It can be hard as well, but the whole point is, you know, as Joey said, if Photography is your hobby, it shouldn't be a competition, you should be doing it to enjoy it. There will always be that element of competition as Joey states, but you don't have to make it purely about that. You can just take photos, enjoy making art and not so much worry about the favourites and the likes. If you know it's a good image yourself, that's all that matters, that's all you should care about. not worrying about how many favourites you're going to get or how many comments, just unnecessary stuff. But it's a really good article, you should go check it out, I'll link it in the show notes as always. The final piece of news, and probably the biggest one of the month, at least, I would say. Sony have unveiled the Alpha A1, a 50 megapixel, 30fps asterisk mark, um, that does AK video for 6500 US dollars. Now, when you hear this, if you didn't hear the asterisk that I added in, sounds insanely good, which, to be honest, it absolutely is. It's got a stack sensor. It's got a new processor, which is what, helping power all this, you know, being able to do this, 120 autofocus calculations per second, which is absolutely insane. The 30 FPS is definitely good. Now with that, at first, they didn't really say it up front, but 30 FPS is only possible when you are shooting compressed RAW. So if you shoot uncompressed, like many people do, myself one of them, you'll be limited to 20 FPS, which is the same as the R5, R6, and the A9's bodies, the a 91 and the A9 Mark II. Sony is citing this has a 15 stops dynamic range with an ISO range of 100 to 32,000 expandable up to 102,400. So how this will actually perform at high ISO is very interesting to see. Being a lower pixel count compared to the A7R 4 which isn't known for its low light performance. It's not bad, but it's not as good as say the A7R Mark III. It'll be interesting how this performs. This also features a 9.44 million dot OLED EVF that is on the... A9S Mark III and it has a refresh rate of 240fps, which I can imagine will chew through the battery but will be so amazing and so smooth. I actually set my R6 to 120fps, uh, refresh rate sorry, and I just leave it on that, I don't bother turning it down. Now this has a, with the mechanical shutter, has a flash sync speed of 1 over 400 of a second, which is very good to hear, which does also extend up to 1 500th a second if you're shooting APS-C mode. And the most exciting part is it actually has a sync speed of one over 200th of a second if you're using electronic shutter. So, being able to use electronic shutter with flash is quite a good and interesting, exciting feature. This is why I was mentioning about the progression in terms of cameras. In terms of AF points, it has 759 AF points with a 92% coverage, which is very similar to what the other R bodies have. I don't put, unlike the R5 and R6, they haven't got 100% yet, but they're usually around that. It also features its real-time tracking, and it also has real-time AF for birds. So whether it can track all animals like lions, you know, like you've seen videos that R5 tracking pretty much any animal, even animals' buttholes, it can still track. That's how amazing it can track at circles. But whether the Sony A1 will be able to track animals' buttholes, who knows? Like birds, probably is more important priority. I'd say for most people, but we'll only tell sooner than later. Now with all the video stuff. 8K blah blah blah, 4K blah blah blah, Super 35 blah blah blah, done. <laughs> you know, I'm sorry, apologize to anyone into video out there, but it's not interest in mine. Photography infuses, not video infuses. So with it, um, its stabilization still sorts supports five-axis optical in-body stabilization for 5.5 stops and heat dispersion structure, which will be interesting. So the two media slots, which you is a must, you know, especially for a camera at this price, supports both UHS-1 and UHS-2. As um, SD card slots, as well as a new CF Express Type A. So, personally, for a camera that costs $6,500, I would have gone just Jules um, CF Express Type A because although they're more expensive compared to SD, if you can afford and need a $6,500 camera, you can afford two CF Express or more cards. You don't need to worry about SD cards. Although it wasn't mentioned, I did read or hear somewhere in one of the preview videos that. Compared to other cameras, this camera's APS-C mode is actually optimized. So it's not just simply cropping the image like you would do in post. It's actually more an optimized crop, which is obviously something new and a great new feature. It's got a brand new, it actually, it even allows anti-flicker shooting in electronic shutter. So stuff like banding on a certain lighting, in theory, shouldn't be an issue in the real world performance now. It's also got an improved electronic shutter. So stuff like field curvature and that, sorry, not field curvature, but any kind of curvature when you're using the electronic shutter, like they show an example of someone shooting golf, whereas previously the golf stick would be curved due to the rolling shutter. Whereas now it's not, that's managed to fix that. So that is a huge thing and a massive improvement in my opinion. Otherwise for a camera, the 6500, it's expensive. It does sound expensive, but when you look at it, it does the same thing as the 1DX Mark III, the Nikon D6, except it's honestly better. The only thing I probably wouldn't beat them for is build. Who knows how weather sealed this thing is and how much it could stand up to abuse like the 1D and the 6D series, or D6 series or D series for Nikon can actually withstand, but that's something I guess we'll see over time. Whether we'd see a lot of people actually do torture tests now that you know Digital Rev don't really make videos like when Kai was there, who knows, but I would love to be able to see Kai do another torture test a1 versus you know the r6 or r1 or r5 or whatever versus the nikon z72 see which one's still surviving still after being set on fire like what it used to do otherwise that's pretty much it for the news when it comes to what i think of the a1 i definitely think it's an impressive camera being that it's out of my price range and probably always will be even if i could afford it in theory i wouldn't buy spend that much money on the camera because it's way more camera than i actually need for what i shoot A lot of people believe the features on this camera will sort of roll down to future bodies. I don't see that happening anytime soon, like even in the next two, three years. Maybe I'm hopefully very wrong, but I see it because this is a flagship camera. These are going to be saved for that camera. Might go down to the A9 series, but I would doubt to see like a A7C Mark II or an A7 IV, including these features. Well, that's it. Yeah, as I mentioned, on to the main topic now. Now, just when I start this main topic, I'm going to do a little kind of disclaimer. First, for those who don't know what bokeh means or how to correctly pronounce it, because everyone says it a bit differently. Bokeh Bokeh is actually a Japanese word that means blur or out of focus. I don't know how it became the main term we use in photography for blur and out of focus, but it works, it's popular, and why change it? Now, in regards to disclaimer, it's not so much a disclaimer. It's more just usually if you look at the phonetic spelling of how to pronounce bokeh is you know b-o-h-k-a-y that's how they say it's correctly pronounced for me i always say this bokeh because you know back in the day around 2011 you know 2012 when i started photography and digital rev was at its most popular with Kaide, he would always say you know because the british accent bokeh he'd always come out bokeh so that's why i always say bokeh just because i'm so used to hearing that every single time every single video so that's sort of more grilled in my head but i'll try my best to say bokeh throughout bokeh, throughout the whole video as much as I can. But so yeah, over the years, you will, if you Google it, many articles, even podcast episodes, videos will say that uh, bokeh is overrated. It's a crutch for photographers who are not creative and don't know how to create a proper image. Lots of opinion around it. This obviously is very subjective because everyone has a different taste in photos. As I mentioned about photography being art and subjective, what you like, I may not. What I may like, you don't. Simple as that. I thought I'd sort of look at it in a bit and say why I think it might be a crutch or something we use we shouldn't use and why it isn't a crutch and why it has its place in photography. So first thing I would say is why I believe it has its place and why it should be used. When used like anything, when used correctly, it it gives a different look to images. So obviously with a smartphone, it's such a small sensor. Unless you use computational photography, you generally can't get a full body portrait with a nice shallow depth of field. It's just not possible. So if everyone used a full frame or APS-C body at like F8, F16 for everything, then our photos would just end up looking like smartphones. And then what is the point of owning a full frame camera or a dedicated interchangeable lens camera in that sense? Obviously you can go way more into detail like bird photography, moon, that kind of stuff. Yeah, but we're not going that, we're just saying that in a more shallow way. If bokeh wasn't popular, then why? Would phone companies be trying to do computational stuff to add bokeh with portrait mode? That's a good question to ask yourself there. But when it comes to a bad reason why people do it, sometimes people don't stop down enough or stop down at all really when they should, which to be honest, I'm guilty of it. Sometimes if I'll take food photos, I should be stopping down to at least F4, F5.6 so I can get the whole meal in focus. Whereas I would probably just keep it, you know, 2.8, maybe even wide open. The food will barely be in focus, but I get some nice bokeh bowls, bokeh bowls in the background, which isn't the right way to do it. You should be stopping down. You should be showing the subject in its entirety first, then worry about that kind of stuff later. Obviously it's not the case. Not everyone does this. Not everyone does this every time. Like I don't do it every time. I'm trying to be more conscious about that kind of stuff from now on as well. You have to look at it as a tool and when and when not to use it. So if we looked at it, like say two different portrait scenarios. Now if you look at purely at headshots, so say you. Our portrait photographer does headshots. You have one client that wants a headshot, but they want it done in the studio, a very clean look for their LinkedIn or something like what I took. In that case, there's no real reason you would need a shallow depth of field. Sure, it can still look nice. And to be honest, that's what I did for my headshot. I had my whole face in focus, but I still had the background a bit blurred out. Whereas if you're out, say your client wants, I really want a natural light headshot, at sunset in the middle of this park if you shoot that at f8 f11 or something you might have people in the background looking at what you're doing you know like sometimes you take a selfie on your phone you always have someone in the background just sort of looking over what you're taking a photo of that kind of stuff you'll have that who knows you have kids running in the background who knows what you have in the background whereas if you use that shallow depth of field that's gonna block all that out and you're actually just focusing on the subject that will be the right scenario to use that tool to your advantage So for me if i was doing outdoor portrait 100% i'd be trying to use a shallow depth of field for a headshot whereas in the studio that's where i'd want to stop it down f8 11 get everything of the person's face in focus what you have to also keep in mind is number one it's very lens dependent so if you're doing a portrait with something like a 35 millimeter it's more suitable for showing your surroundings which we'll get into a bit more in a second whereas you're shooting something like a 135 1.8 l 85, you really shouldn't be stopping those lenses down. They have these fast apertures. They're made for shallow depth of field. So, if you want the whole background in focus, you're honestly better off using a wide angle lens. But once again, opinion, subjective, it's sort of up to you. So, we'll look at another scenario that a portrait, whether you need a depth of field or not, a shallow depth of field or not. So, say for example, I was taking a portrait of someone that was traveling and I needed to tell a story about where they're going. So, say I'm on a tarmac or something uh, at the airport. If I have this person there standing there with their luggage, but say, for example, I use something like a 135-18 and actually destroyed the background. So you could kind of tell something was in the background, but you couldn't quite tell. That sort of doesn't really tell the story as well. as Say I use something like a 518, 18 a 35 35 35-F18, that kind of thing, where the subject's intact sharp in focus, whereas the background's slightly blurred out. Not so blurred out that you can't make out details. You can see there's a plane there. You can see, you know, whatever, sunset lighting. And they're about to board. You just can't see it in perfect focus. To me, that is the best because you're given context. You're actually telling a story within the image. Now, every portrait photographer does differently. I'm not a portrait photographer, so I can't really question people on how they do it. But you'll get portrait photographers, and this is pure honesty. All their photos are is just attractive women sitting there. That's it. They might be sitting in, a, in front of a wall, sitting on a bench, that kind of thing. It's just purely about the model's looks is they're not actually telling a story. Whereas you'll get someone like, she doesn't photograph women mostly, but kids, Elena Shimolova, I think on Flickr, hers actually tells stories. They, even though she uses a shallow depth of field, you can still get an idea, you know, like her kids dressed up pretending to fish or something or in a boat it actually has a story to it. To me, that's where, you know, I personally like to have a mix. You can actually have the background and give some context while still having a depth, shallow depth of field to isolate the subject When it comes down to it. It all depends on what tools you use and how you use it. Because when you use, say, a long tele lens, like a 135, 85, use it wide open and kind of shoot wider, not just like a really tight headshot or upper body, use a full body shot from a bit of a distance. It does give like a bit of a 3D effect and really make you stand out from the background. You can see the background, see everything in it, but it does have a certain look to it, which you can't do if you're shooting, say, a 35 at f8. If anything, there's lots of crutches in photography that people use. It's just what people accept as one on what people don't. So people will probably hate me for this, which I have done it as well. i done it just last week when I took my moon shot, but cropping. A lot of people use cropping as a way to fix composition and stuff after the fact, after they've taken the shot, which you could see is a crutch. Like if there was a band somehow, the cropping feature was removed from all image processors. what would you do then? If you take like my photo of the moon, the moon would be, size of a five cent piece or something you know it's actually a crutch that people use as well but people use it as a tool so when shooting the moon as i mentioned you would even need a really long lens to be able to get the shot we get without cropping or like to hook your camera up to a telescope which isn't always feasible in that case it's used correctly in my opinion it's used to make up for that lack of gear whereas some people just shoot wide who cares crop later to me that's a bit more lazy i'm the old school get a riding camera type so it really comes down to how you view stuff. So person A may say bokeh is a crutch, whereas person B may say cropping is a crutch. And person B loves bokeh, whereas person A hates it, but loves cropping. So if that person's making good images and excellent images, and they're not just doing say the exact same photo over and over and over again, what does it matter? If that photo looks nice, that photo catches your eye, even if it does have a very shallow depth of field, as long as it looks good, right? That's all that matters. As long as you tell the story, And you create art on how you envision it. That's all matters. Hopefully I did that sort of topic some justice and didn't, you know, make myself sound like more of a fool. But to me, it's something that sort of is very subjective. No matter what anyone says, it's no straight answer for it. It's not black or white. It's definitely 100% gray. But I hope you enjoyed me covering this. I know I didn't go into too much detail for it. I was a bit stuck with what to talk about this week. A few things I have in mind, but I wanted to go a bit more in detail, wait a bit longer and then sort of go from there. But... Hopefully, in the coming weeks, I'll have more topics. I forgot to add it at first last week, admittedly. Last, sorry, fortnight. But you're still able to suggest a topic for me, which would be really great help. But otherwise, that's it for this episode. Now, this concludes this episode. So thank you for listening. If you'd like to see tutorials, reviews, or find older episodes of this show, you can find it at tpepodcast.xyz. If you'd like to see my personal work, You can find me at photosbydlwe.com. All of these links will be in the show notes. Otherwise, you can find my links and everything from my website. If you did enjoy this episode, make sure to subscribe so you can be notified when we release a new episode every fortnight. Otherwise, thank you very much for listening and I hope you enjoyed it. Bye.